This is My Montessori Life, a podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom, everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire. The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, President of Montessori Europe and one of the world's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the teacher's textbook Basic Montessori and founder of the software firm My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast. In this first of three podcasts on the theme of creativity, Barbara and David discuss Maria Montessori's unique take on children and art. She did not focus on children's naive attempts at painting, colouring and play-doh, as is usually practised at nurseries. Instead, she facilitated the young child's desire to acquire grown-up skills, for example, seeing subtle differences in colours and shapes and handling proper tools and materials. And she supported the child generally in discovering his or her authentic self. Montessori believed that together these early advances would foster, in due course, the child's real creative potential. Thank you very much, and we're delighted to be back together for this um, next episode of My Montessori Life. Um, Creativity is a fun uh, and exciting topic to explore. It's one where um, I think a lot of Montessorians are unsure where they're meant to be and where they're positioned. Um, quite famously, some a lot of Montessori nurseries don't have the usual toys for imaginative play that people are used to seeing in nursery schools, like toy kitchens and dollhouses and so on. Um, of course, many of them have painting and drawing and craft, um, but it's not really seen as a priority in Montessori schools. So I'm just wondering, Barbara, why might this be? I think that it is to do with the traditional training that people have had. If you look at um, the content of uh, Montessori teacher training, there is very little focus um, on creativity because Montessori herself has written so little about it. Um, And I think she has written a lot, for example, about uh, um, training uh, in music, and we have got the Montessori bells, and we have got the whole system of um, helping the child to be proficient in being able to read music and to compose by ear to some extent. But she has not, in terms of her understanding what it takes for a child to be able to draw or express their idea through the visual medium. Um, It is, um, I don't think she understood really very much about it. And it may be also that um, um, she's a product of her time to some extent, uh, because um, when she... um, started to think about uh, what young children should learn, she really focused mostly on the child's capacity for pencil control. So we have got the insets for design, which um, really helped the child to grow um, in controlling the pencil and being able to um, prepare for writing. Um, And when I look at some of the patterns um, that I have been taught to 
um, help children do in the nursery, I very much align it to the technical drawing that my father had as a child in the 1920s. Um, and I think for Montessori, there's a huge focus on skills. So acquiring the skill to be able to do something in order to be able to express yourself. And that alludes to the introduction that Montessori wanted the children to be really capable in using the resources um, and didn't guide very much on how to express what the child may feel um, because she felt it was enough to give the skill base and she believed that the child has the potential to unfold spontaneously whatever lies within them. But of course, that then requires the adult who facilitates um, that learning in the nursery or in the elementary school to really understand and provide the resources so that the child can really express uh, what they feel because there can be such a huge variety of self-expression um, in terms of... Yeah, we, we sometimes hear parents talking about how talented their little one is and what an amazing drawing they've made and so on. And I think the best... Uh, encouragement for the parents in those situations is to say, well, make sure they have the materials they need, you know, make sure that they have the space to work, the, um, you know, a, a supply of paper and, and, and implements, whatever they're, they're working with. Um, and don't overly praise them, you know, um, show interest and, you know, respond when they ask your, your views. But, um, Mostly just give them unconditional love and, and care and the space and respect to, to be self-expressive. Uh, but I think that the resources that the parents provide should be of the highest quality so that when the child uses colored pencils, they, are, they really flow beautifully. The child doesn't have to press very hard. Uh, when you give paints, you provide clean brushes and clean pots so that the child can really see the color of the paint. Um, uh, yesterday, because it was the very first lovely day we have had, I put up the easel for my grandchildren on, on our patio. And it was so interesting to observe the four-year-old on one side of the easel and the 16-month-old on the other side of the easel. Um, and because I provided a brush for each one of the pots, the 16-month-old already only used the brush from the pot um, as so you, he, they were not interchangeable. She didn't put the same brush into the orange pot and the blue brush into the, you know. So oh, the wow. colors mm -hmm. remain, when she applied them, they remained clear on the paper. Only when she started to move the brush, uh, they become muddled. Whereas the four-year-old knew exactly what she wanted. She wanted colored spots. She wanted the different colors. She, um, she was very careful about applying them in a way so that they would not merge together. Um, so there is, um, I think having the opportunity and access to the resources of high quality is really, really important. And uh, um, I sometimes feel a little bit sad when children are either given very small pieces of paper to work on because they don't have the coordination yeah. to actually manage small pieces or when they are given um, paints that are very dirty and the, have not been cleaned very often. So it's brown paint instead of beautiful yellow paint. Uh, uh, yeah. I also think that it is a, 
a pity when if a child says they want to do another picture. I have known children who have done three or four paintings one after the other. And um, yeah. mm -hmm. if they are limited to doing one, then that doesn't satisfy the spontaneous urge. Yeah, as usual, they're just as excited about the process as the outcome. So it's, you know, they can actually spend quite a long time on a painting um, in, in order to, you know, fully extend and explore mm. their abilities. I think that, um, you know, we're often told that Dr. Montessori was a scientist first and foremost, but do you think that um, part of the reason that she didn't prioritize you know, play and imagination and so on, was that she wasn't particularly attracted to art and culture. Was she actually, in her own life, more concerned with facts and and um, and theories, you know, scientific approach to things? I was thinking about that as I was preparing for today. Was it that she was a scientist? Um, and where did her kind of natural... Have we had any signs that she engaged this art? And she definitely refers to Raphael's Madonna um, in her writing, and she wanted this to be the painting that the children could look at um, in the nursery. So it is interesting that um, um, that was her model, her ideal model um, for for art or. or a beautiful painting. Um, I don't. Yeah. I don't really think she she fully engaged with um, this creative element um, of the human spirit. I think she was really fascinated in the way how we thought and how we processed information, and um, really um, how we constructed the cognitive element of our being, uh, because. Um, she also has not managed the human tendency for creativity um, in her um, tendencies of men that she saw as the genetic uh, predisposition of human beings. And yet for me, the capacity to be creative in many different ways is probably the one unique characteristics of the human species which set us apart from other creatures in the animal kingdom. Yes, I agree with that. I think that, she, you know, her sensitive periods also don't specifically mention creativity. Um, and But it's possible that she was reacting against the prevailing view of young children, that they were generally um, living in a fantasy world, that they made things up, that they played, you know, to an adult would, in a way that would seem random, and that people just assumed that they were um, kind of little artists already, and that that didn't you didn't need to cultivate that. What you needed to do was to focus on the side that that adults were ignoring, which was their um, development of conceptual skills, the refinement of their perception, um, and you know the the nurturing of early preparations for maths and reading and writing, which I think was probably a surprise to her peers. Whereas if she'd said to them, "Oh, uh, you know." I'm going to focus on children's creativity. They would have said, well, they don't need any help with that. You know, they, they naturally do that sort of thing. That may be so, but we don't see enough evidence um, of that in her writing um, to be able to say yes or no categorically. I'm, what I, I have recently, I have come across 
few essays by Montessori uh, in which she talks to parents. And it is really, really interesting that, first of all, she uses much more accessible language when she speaks to the parents, um, a language which is much better understood by parents of today. And um, she talks a great deal about play. And she talks a great deal about the children's capacity to engage in meaningful play for themselves. Um, of course, we as adults are often excluded from the focus or the purpose of the child's play because they don't verbalize it, they just do it. Uh, but um, she felt that um, at home, play was a really very beneficial tool for child's self-expression. Um, and role play as such for 90% of children's play is based on real experiences. They play mummies or daddies or they play doctors and nurses or they play um, policemen and uh, the robber. <laughs> you know, they kind of play the play scenarios are very much reflecting their concerns. Um, and so the child's creativity through play enables them to recreate um, experiences or enables them to um, handle situations which they find sometimes difficult. Um, and I think that that denial of the role play area in the nursery or um, denial of um, the kitchen um, where the children pretend to be cooking um, or do kind of domestic tasks um, is very unique to Montessori. And I, I would really like the Montessori community to explore it a little bit more or perhaps think about why is it necessary for that part of a the classroom to be there because not all children will engage with it. They will use their creative imagination in different ways. Some will want to be in the role play area, some way, way, some will want to be in the creative area. Others will do blocks and work in three dimensions much more readily than other children. So I think that we need to facilitate for the very many different facets through the child's um, capacity to express their thoughts and ideas and their imagination. Then we do, we very much focus on scaffolding the cognitive skills, allowing the child to be uh, a logical thinker. Yeah. I, I've always liked the theory that um, young children's mental powers, their logical um, abilities are actually on a level with an adult and that all they really lack is the experience um, to use those logical skills to come to proper conclusions and that where they don't have experience, they substitute their imagination. So, you know, when they, when you say, why is the sky blue, then they might come up with, oh, you know, there's a big paintbrush that someone used to make it blue. So do you, what what is your view of this? Is the child's imagination just a guess at what reality is when they don't have the, the knowledge or experience, or is it more than that? I think it's much more than that. Um, I 
in some instances, it definitely is lack of experience and is a tool for helping to understand reality or understand their experiences. But in other ways, I think that it is much more than than that because um, our oldest granddaughter has had an imaginary friend uh, from the time she was three and a half, from the time that she could speak. Um, she has created these friends and she has given them names which I have absolutely no idea where they came from. So one is Ali, who can be boy or a girl, depending, very intergen interchangeable gender. The other one is... That's very modern of her. <laughs> absolutely, very contemporary. <laughs> uh, uh, the other one is India, who is definitely a girl, and I know she... There is a girl called India in nursery, so that's where she mirrors it. And the third one is Ruga, which um, is a totally made-up name. Ruga features not as often in her play. But those friends are consistent um, in... They kind of experience life alongside with her. Um, and it is not uncommon for children to have imaginary friends. And yes, you could argue that maybe the imaginary friends are fulfilling a role that of something that is missing in the child's life. But to have the capacity to create them is quite unique. Yeah, I think an adult would have a hard time maintaining that much fantasy, especially consistently, you yes. know, where it was an ever-present in the back of their mind that this, oh, you know, what would Ruga think of this situation? Exactly. Um, thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> An adult would have a hard time keep, keeping that straight. Are there art-making activities, given that, you know, Montessorians could consider doing more of this, are there specific art-making activities that would be considered Montessorian, um, you know, rather than a deviation from Montessori, would actually augment and, and, and further develop Montessori progress? So when I initially trained um, to be a Montessori teacher, um, we did have on the a section of the practical life shelf, which would introduce the child to how to use a stencil, how to use charcoal, um, how to use Play-Doh. So you would have all the resources that the child can need uh, for that particular activity grouped together um, so that they would give them opportunity to develop the technique of using a colored pencil or using a watercolor rather than poster paint, um, using a charcoal rather than pencil. So that has kind of been part of the training about um, 30 years ago. But nowadays, um, what Montessori teachers tend to do, they tend to provide an area of the classroom where they will have a variety of resources using glue and um, cuttings of paper and textiles so the children could do collages or they could create whatever they would need to create or they would like to create. For me, that it is not only about having the resources. It's sometimes important for somebody to demonstrate the technique or to provide little pearls of inspiration for the children. And this is where um, the Reggio approach to early childhood education is an interesting model of um, 
preparing the environment which is very available and accessible to the child the same way as it would be for Montessori. But they are also working with an artist um, and, uh, and a pedagogue. So together they build on some of the ideas that the children may have and offer a range of opportunities to extend their capacity. Um, to be to express their thoughts and their ideas, either through art or through dance or through music or through structure, through some kind of a building activity. And I think that's what we tend to lack. And that's what is sometimes difficult um, for us as Montessori teachers, because we are in a way quite naturally attracted to the idea of the helping the child to be a logical thinker, scaffolding their learning to uh, access uh, things in a spontaneous way. I, I think that goes to the heart of what I would um, like to see as um, play imagination and art and creativity in the Montessori classroom, which is to give the children those the skills they need to authentically express um, their inner visions and, and, and imagination and thoughts. Mm. And it's very frustrating if you want to be an artist. And I think all adults feel this, that many, many of us want to paint or we want to draw or we see something beautiful that we want to capture. And we actually just don't have the skills to do it well. And, you know, we know that they would take years to develop those skills. And so we don't even try. So I think that that's, an exciting area of overlap between the scaffolding learning that we're used to in Montessori and um, preparation for being an artist in the same way we prepare children for being a writer or prepare children for being, you know, an orator or, you know, whatever adult skill um, is in its nascent form in, you know, in under fives. So I think there is an opportunity for a conceptual bridge between Montessori and, the stimulation of art and creativity in the Montessori classroom. Um, you know, it's it's natural to say, well, we're developing every aspect of the human being. Um, why not, you know, focus on that aspect as well? Yes, I, I think that that, um, that continues to be a challenge for the Montessori community. But it is even in environments where you have got those facilities for children, even in Reggio Emilia, where they plant all those seeds of the creative process and give the tools to the children to express themselves in an authentic way, those children go to mainstream educational establishments uh, when compulsory education begins. And so many children lose that natural enjoyment of color or natural enjoyment of creating something. So it is, a, um, it is a challenge to the whole educational system as we know it, which focuses on uh, academic learning, not on developing the whole person. Uh, uh, recently, I went to an exhibition in Tate Modern and um, a family were looking um, at these pictures by Matisse and their child who must have been eight or nine actually had a sketch pad and found the pictures and she was just sitting in front of it, looking at it and trying to draw at the same time. And, you know, classically, that's how artists were trained. They were copying the work of 
somebody yeah, else who was that. also you a better. You can see it even now in galleries, can't you, yeah. where, you know, art students are there oh, trying absolutely. to understand the techniques. Yeah, But we don't give young children that opportunity very often. And it was really wonderful, wonderful to see. And recently I also saw a documentary on David Hockney and I was thinking, what has made this artist to be so versatile? I mean, he has got so many different styles of, and so many different themes that he explores um, in such a vibrant way, well into his old age. And I suppose that's what I would like for the children who show the potential in very young, if they choose to be artists as they go along, that they would still have this urgency to create um, and explore new ideas. Uh, for me, creativity is about this capacity to embark on new ideas and explore them for personal satisfaction. Of course, um, in terms of making living out of art, you need to be ex really successful, <laughs> first of all, yes, in order to be very. able to mm -hmm. indulge um, that creative urge. But the legacy of David Hockney is so vibrant and so positive. And I think that's what, for me, to be creative, so that you can share your gifts with others. I, I think that is really, for me, very important element of um, creativity. I think I would be really sad if we as humans became just little uh, robots of the logical mind without the capacity to think out of the box and be a little bit crazy. <laughs> Yes, I think you sometimes hear from educators a, a comparison of the human mind with computers or machines, and it's not appropriate or fruitful, is it? It's it's actually, um, you know, quite limiting. I, I think there is a problem in the language that, unfortunately, we've started to use the word creativity and creative in relation to innovation, which is where you're presented with a problem to solve, and you look for a... Um, you know, unexpected or maybe, um, you know, you, you have to look at the opposite of what you expected in order to come up with the answer. And it is creative in the sense that you're, um, you know, you're not following a set procedure. So you might be inventing a new way of thinking about the problem. But that's not quite the same as the imagination-based creativity that we think of in an artistic or cultural context. And I think sometimes the education world gets confused between those two. And if they say, oh, you know, have you got creativity in your classroom? They'd say, oh, yes, because the children have to come up with a way of doing something which is unconventional, you know, or they might not have the materials, the usual materials for solving a problem. So they have to improvise with something else. Um, what do you think about that? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. I have... Uh... I have thought about creativity in much more encompassing way, uh, potentially in line with what you describe as the current thinking, um, that um, a child needs to be able to, or not needs to be able, but it's wonderful to see some kind of original thought. Um, uh, and so that originality could be in relation to uh, artistic creation in terms of arts and crafts or uh, music or dancing, but it could also relate to architecture and science. Um, 
or, you know, when, when I think about, for example, skill of a bookbinding, to be a really first-class bookbinder, you have to be creative, but at the same time, you have to embrace so many skills and really detailed scientific knowledge, the understanding of paper, understanding of how, for example, different kinds of glues work, how leather works, all of that gets combined into producing a beautiful book at the end. So I, d I don't know. Um, I, I, you also see it in the arts and crafts movement um, um, of um, the 19th century that has combined this kind of scientific um, knowledge together with creativity. Um, and maybe for some children in the nursery school, just to be able to think of something for themselves and be allowed the time to create it is a potential beginning of something later on. And I think that to be really creative takes to have the conditions. Um, so you need to have the resources and the materials, but you also need to have the time to develop something and to return to it because often um, young children create the same things or things on the same theme for quite a long time um, until they stop, until they have fulfilled that need. Uh, I have often seen it when children used to use blocks to, to create things. Um, it would start from very simplistic structures and the structures would become over time more and more complex using space and light as part of those structures, which ultimately are uh, the beginnings of architecture and designing um, or managing space in relation to form. So it would be important for sculpture too. Yeah, I, I can. I know that's a tradition with many artists to fully explore a theme or a technique mm -hmm. and come back to it again and take a new perspective on it. Um, and so it seems the child's natural inclination to do that is actually echoing what happens in professional yeah. art. Um, and it, it so it makes sense that what the child is doing is preparing their mind to to be open to new perspectives on the same stimulus. How do the Waldorf or Steiner schools, how do they differ from um, Montessori's approach? So um, um, in Waldorf schools, uh, they only present children with red, blue, and yellow paints. And um, they often use very high-quality watercolor paper. Um, in the very traditional classrooms, they will also cut the paper into an oval shape rather than being rectangular so that that experience of seeing the colors merge and creating um, new colors um, is not only uh, in the kind of process of the painting but also the way how it is presented and it is it is very uh, in terms of painting I, I have always found that incredibly beautiful but I have also known many children who really loved to paint in black for quite a long time or um, children who would prefer brown as a color to draw this rather than um, yellow. So I, I think that it is 
limiting to the personal ex- creativity of the child. They also, in terms of crafts, they do quite a lot of felting, which is again very, very lovely because it's lovely sensorially, um, lovely sensorial materials, and you can create beautiful colors. And for their role play, they use exquisite natural materials, which are totally open-ended. So the children use discs of wood and things like that. So, yes, but it is limited to, again, there are limitations to the child's creativity through the way what is expected that will come out as as a product of that. Right. You know, speaking of the... um the sort of limited expectations, isn't it surprising how similar children's art is, um, you know, when you get them drawing figuratively or painting figuratively, how they have the same structures in their head that they're trying to put onto the paper to represent what they see. And I've always been curious, is this a, a, a condition of their of their perception of the world, or is it uh, a reflection of their skills being limited to drawing stick men or to, you know, making a square with a triangle for a house and things like that. Uh, I think that the, we generally accept that there is a kind of general progression in how the child grows more competent through painting or drawing. And so mostly when they first start painting people, you will have the face will be the most important part and the body gradually emerges in in different shapes, um, shapes of forms. Um, But it it is interesting that, for example, the way how children draw six-year-olds draw people in Eastern Europe is very specific to that part of the world. I can see a drawing um, of of a princess usually or girl that will have a very narrow waist of is a skirt flirt out. What makes me wonder if has this come about because that's how we have originally drawn it for them as as adults. And so that it already shapes their perception of what a human pe- person should look like. Um, and I was thinking about that also as I was um preparing for today because um, most children will draw rounded people or stick people Uh, but you have occasional exception where a child will draw a totally rectangular person (laughs) Uh, uh, because they maybe because they haven't been affected by other people showing them how to do it Um, I don't know. Uh, I would, or maybe they I think the world is more angular. Might be. Uh, I would. I have not studied enough about um, art expression or uh, drawing of children in other parts of the world. All I know about children's drawing is really in um, in the Western uh, in the Western world, and I, I I just wonder if children in Africa or uh, in parts of Asia, would draw in a different way. That, that would be yes, an in- th- interesting study. It would. I think that um, partly they would be influenced by what they see adults creating. So there's no, mm. you know, there's no question they would try to imitate that. But I think that what a child is drawing 
especially when it's not in front of them the way an artist, you know, with an easel in front mm -hmm. of a, a lake with a sailboat, you know, is trying to copy or interpret what they see. That what you're seeing the child put down on paper is really what's in their memory. So it's what's stuck about the um, identity and the recognizable features of the world that they know as remembered. So I think it's to do with, um, you know, not reflecting what they perceive minute by minute, but what they remember seeing. And so maybe the child with the square shoulders remembers seeing that, or the child with the big head remembers that aspect of, uh, and it's what sticks with them rather than, you know, is the is the filter through which they perceive the whole world. Is that, yes, and I think that um, that is mirrored in the fact that most children will draw their own family first. And yes. they will mm -hmm. always draw themselves as the biggest. <laughs> uh, and um, then will come the siblings who will always be smallest and then how they will... Um, draw the mother and father is an interesting element. Um, our granddaughter recently drew her family um, du during lockdown. And in that picture, she made her father have a very, very long arm that stretched all around the family, which I, oh. of course, interpreted as a grown-up, as a very wonderful way how she sees her father. Uh, uh, and I wonder if that's really so. I I will not know. I didn't want to explore that idea with her, but it was really um, quite charming for her to, or for me to think that she thinks about her family in this way. <laughs> yes. It would have been interesting to have that conversation, but I understand why you didn't. Because I'm sure children do express their unconscious concerns and desires and dreams, mm. you know, what's going on in their inner psyche through everything they do. So partly through their role-playing um, partly through um, the way they approach problem solving, but especially through their creative art work that they do. It would make a great area for early educators to look at because if we're interested in developing the whole child, then maybe there's a bit of a window into that child through the things they create. Yeah, I think that that's... But that's what I would like to think, that we spend a little bit more time in giving the children time to express whatever creative urges they may have um, in order to get to know them more and then supporting that area of development rather than focusing too much on, you know, the letters and numbers <laughs> as an essential preparation for life. Because yeah. in life, you need so many diverse skills. And uh, particularly today when we think um, about so many young people with mental health issues, um, I think if there was an opportunity for them to have a um, creative outlet through music or through dance or through drama, um, some of these problems uh, may resolve themselves through the self-expression that they that is facilitated through those creative activities. I don't know if parents are still like this, but when I was young, every child had to learn uh, to play an instrument. Um, you had to have, the, you know, little girls had to have their ballet lessons. Um, 
you know, there was endless art projects at, at summer camp and, you know, things happening that parents push their children, why don't you try this, why don't you try that? Um, do you think that's generally a positive thing or maybe it then puts the the artistic expression too much into a, a routine, you know, with examinations and and levels and all the adult structures that, that turn art into a procedure rather than a, an exploration? I think that whole idea of the extracurriculum learning or the after-school clubs, the range of things that are offered to children can be sometimes quite overwhelming. I think that it yeah. would be good if children had uh, some of those resources at home and were able to take them up at their leisure rather than at the time when which is organized because I'm sure that even the greatest artists don't feel always doing their work on the dot of four when the art teacher arrives. Um, <laughs> I think that um, I, I think that it, it is really important for parents to come to know their children well enough to encourage the area of interest, but not expect too much of it. You know, so um, when I was a child, I had, uh, I wanted to learn the piano and um, I did learn quite enthusiastically when I had my father by my side to play the piano with me. Um, when he died, it was really difficult. And my mother insisted I continue to play in his memory, which became a torture. <laughs> really. Um, and I have, I really have not got any talent. I could process logically how the piano worked, but I, I'm not a musically gifted person, so I couldn't ever be any good at it. And I think that was, I mean, it's probably too extreme example, but it is a pity when parents think, so you have, I have paid for your violin, so you have to now practice. They need to see it as a part of life, as experiencing something, exploring it. And then if it's of not interest, well, that's we move on. That's why it's so good when, for example, school can encourage music education so that the children can, can try several instruments uh, who would not have had that opportunity otherwise. I think music gets a fair hearing, but I don't mm. think that um, adult art from you know, great painting, great sculpture, um, even uh, great filmmaking, you know, um, great illustration. I don't think those things are exposed enough um, in, the, in the early education. And it was interesting that you mentioned that Montessori herself recognized the beauty of Raphael and would have liked to have seen that in, in nursery schools. But I'm afraid too many nursery schools I've been in, the only thing on the wall is the, you know, a, a collage that everybody made together. Um, what do you think about putting, <laughs> putting great art in, in, in the classroom? Oh, I've, I'm guilty of something very similar, not Raphael's, uh, Raphael's Madonna, but I absolutely love the Matisse snail and we have always had it. Uh, on the wall of the classroom because it's such a beautiful shape of color and, and form. So I, I suppose that we, some of our aesthetic appreciations will be represented in the classroom. Uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of um, group 
projects done by the children where everybody's expected to do the same thing. But when uh, I first started teaching, um, we had uh, an area at the child's level, which was their gallery, their display space. And if a child did something they really wanted to put up, they would put it up. And when we first started, of course, everybody wanted to have their picture up and it was always displayed. Uh, but uh, as, as we got used to it, the children became quite discerning about their own work and would only put things on up that they really enjoyed. And when um, we then set up the nursery, um, we collected samples of every child's painting over a period of a year. And once a year, we organized an exhibition in the local museum. So we took great care in mounting the pictures. And what was amazing, that when the pictures were all mounted and I laid them out in our living room, I, I always saw a seam or a thread which went through the pictures in some way. So was, I was able to write a lovely introduction to it, and we had a grand opening to which the families and parents oh, that sounds came. sounds wonderful, yeah. And it stayed up on show for the local community to see with a visitor's book so that people could write things into it. So we really demonstrated that you can value the child's creativity by making an exhibition of it and enrich the community within the little town where we lived. And it was re uh, recently I came through the introductory presentations that I made for those five exhibitions that we did. And I was quite amazed how much we could see in those pictures and how we could celebrate the child's unique capacity to put paint on a sheet of paper in a certain way, and how different children could be from year to year. Yeah, that, what, a, what a wonderful um, project to have at your nursery. Um, I hope it inspires some others who are listening to, to do something similar. That sounds really valuable. Um, there was, I remember a couple of years ago, there was something came out in the, in the news media about psychologists saying that if your child has a lot of detail in their drawings and paintings, so eyebrows on a face or they've put birds in the tree or they've drawn a dress and put polka dots on it, that this was a sure indication of their high intelligence. Um, and then I can imagine immediately after all the, all the parents going, you know, put eyebrows on there, put freckles on that face, you know, <laughs> trying to get children to, to do the detail thing. Um, but I, I think, I do think there's something in that. It's something about children's ability to see um, and what and and not just detail, but the particulars of what they notice do tell you something about what's going on in their mind. Was that Absolutely. something that you you noticed when when you were working with children in your in your nursery? Yes, very much so. And different children will find different elements of interest, and they will make a feature of it in their drawing it will be that will be the unique part of 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 the um, self um, expression how it reflects the child's intelligence i'm not quite sure that um <laughs> I, I would put it as far as that but it really demonstrates the young child's 
high capacity for observation. And I think that we often underestimate that in our behaviors because children observe not only the physical parts of us, but also how we behave. And then they internalize it and reproduce it in their own um, activities and in their own self-expression. And I think that we significantly underestimate the child's capacity to observe the environment in which they live. We think we have to teach them everything directly, when in fact, the indirect learning that takes place all the time is unbelievable. And um, particularly in toddlers and three and four-year-olds. And I think we should really listen more to what the children are telling us in order to understand the whole child. Okay, that seems like a good place to stop for now. Thanks again to Barbara Isaacs and David Getman, and we'll see you in the next episode.